Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So welcome, uh, my name is Jacob Steele, the events manager at Banyan Books and Sound. Um, I'll just say a few words about Michael Stone. Uh, Michael Stone can best be described as a cross between a spiritual teacher and a public intellectual. He weaves traditional contemplative teachings, yoga, zen, and vipassana, with the insights of Western psychology to present a body of knowledge that simultaneously addresses personal healing and social change. This makes him a necessary mentor for a new generation of students aiming to integrate mindfulness into their urban, busy, but socially engaged lives. Uh, he's the author of several titles, Yoga for a World Out of Balance, Awaken the World, Freeing the Body, Freeing the Mind, The Inner Tradition of Yoga. And his new book is Family Wakes Us Up. And uh, today he's a, he's a recent father, uh, I guess two years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so that's where he's weaving uh, his dharma and his meditation teachings and awakening teachings in with the practice of family life. Today we're going to offer, um, as a special discount, 10% off uh, any of his titles uh, as a special like event thing. So we're really pleased to have him. Please welcome Michael Stone. Thank you. Um, thank you, Jacob. Such a nice introduction. Um, good morning. Good yeah. morning. Um, my family was supposed to be here, but um, my partner Karina has a flu, and so she's lying on the bathroom floor and at her parents' house, and her parents are taking care of my little baby. So uh, this is how it goes, right? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and she was so excited because most of the events that I've been doing she can't come to because she's looking after Olin, and she was so excited to finally come to something. So anyways, I thought I'd start with that preamble because I think most of you know the situation. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about why this book came to be and how it came to be, because I think that's the most interesting part of this process for me. And then I'll read a tiny bit from the beginning of the book uh, without giving away, you know, punchline and uh, yeah and then maybe we can have a discussion does, does all this sound reasonable yeah okay so um, I when I was uh, a younger person I, I had a, a son in a previous relationship to the one I have now and so he's he's turning 12 years old and my youngest uh, is two years old. So I've been a dad for 12 years, which seems crazy uh, to me. And um, I felt like there were so many books around on parenting. And especially because my interest is in contemplative practice, 
there's so many books on mindful parenting. And so, for example, you know, Dan Siegel's books on the whole brain child and his new book on discipline uh, are such phenomenal books and um, really uh, are like my go-to books for getting advice about being a parent and being a parent in a way that's not repeating old habits and not being reactive. And so I highly suggest those books. But I also feel like we're in this age of an obsession with neuroscience and of cognitive behavioral ways of thinking about our minds where we're always just talking about behavior and how behavior is somehow symptomatic of everything that's wrong in, uh, in our lives. And I really feel like in reading those books that something's missing for me, which is the inner experience. Like, two people can have the same kinds of behavior, but their inner experience of that behavior can be totally different. And it seemed to me not the best way to talk about family life is just the behavior of our children or the behavior of parents. And I also feel like this whole idea of mindful parenting is a tiny bit oppressive. It's like one more way we're supposed to be perfect as parents. And my experience of mindfulness as a dad is it's accurate. You know, we want to be more present with our kids. We want to be more present with our partners. But at the same time, I also felt like that's not really what my practice has taught me. My practice has taught me more just how to be a person. And that's something that I want to model for my kids, just as much as I want to be present for my kids. And secondly, I'm a man. And when I go read about parenting, I felt like there was really very little that talked about what it's like being a father from the perspective of experience. And as we all know, we don't encounter very much, especially in literature, what men feel like and how they communicate with each other about how they feel. Does that make sense? <laughs> and, and so I felt like I wanted to pull back the curtain a little bit and say, hey, this is what it's like for us as dads and as parents. So that came after the beginning of the book because the beginning of the book was my good friend Matthew Remsky, who some of you m might know independent of this project, who's pretty much the smartest person I've ever met. <laughs> um, him and I both separated from our partners at the same time. We were both devastated at the same time. We both committed to never having babies again. <laughs> and um, then we both fell in love again at pretty much the same time. And um, one day I saw Matthew walk into a room and there was another woman there that I had known for a long time. And I turned to my Karina, who wasn't my partner yet, and I said, they're going to fall in love. And they did. And then we both found out at the same time that we were pregnant. So we started writing emails to each other saying, I'm freaked out. <laughs> Am I really going to do this? You know, are you really going to do that? Like, we were, we were scared, actually. And I think we didn't realize it at the time, but we were a little bit cynical because I think for both of us, our separations were so painful. And uh, 
we just didn't really know how to take a step forward with confidence, you know? So we weren't turning to books about mindful parenting, right? So we started writing these emails back and forth, and Matthew is one of these people that, like, overdoes everything. So I would write a short email, and he would write me back, like, eight pages. And if you get the book, you'll see that his, his letters are way longer than my letters. And... Um, and he really upped the bar, saying, like, if we're going to write emails, we said, let's really go for it. And um, so we started writing these very intimate uh, emails. I don't think I'd ever written emails that intimate to anybody. And, um, and then after about eight months, so this was when our partners were around seven months pregnant, we said, you know, why don't we make this a book and let other people see what it's like to be in our minds. And I also have to say that for me that was a little bit different because I've written many books. I have a persona as, you know, a spiritual teacher. And, you know, there's something when you teach where after a while you can buy into that model a little bit. And so I felt like, oh my God, to actually say what I'm saying in this book in public would, you know, just crack everything. And that seemed a good enough reason to do it. <laughs> and actually, I have to say that also writing that way with Matthew has totally changed how I'm writing now, because I'm working on a new book. And, and just to be able to talk more personally about experience is, uh, is really challenging, especially when you're in a position where you're usually the person at the front of the room, like in this dynamic. So... Um, I hope that was an okay preamble to, <laughs> to what this book was about. Um, and also, um, it turned out that this book was really, really healing because we got to say some things to each other that I feel like both of us had a hard time articulating to ourselves. And that's the thing about words and language is that when you actually want to say something, you have to really get behind it. There's uh, my favorite poet is uh, lives in uh, British Columbia. His name is Robert Bringhurst. You shouldn't leave this store without something of his. And uh, he has a wonderful line where he says that you know, as whenever you make art, you then have an apartment in history. And I really like this this term, an apartment in history. And so it also made me feel like I want to take this book seriously and and uh, say something that I think uh, is true to me with the understanding that if I say something that really feels true, then other people will, will feel, I hope, that this is true for them also. Um, and also knowing that, you know, maybe it wouldn't be fathers buying this book. Maybe it would be men who are scared of being fathers, or uh, grandparents, or people who don't have kids who are wondering, you know, what it's like to, to try and just uh, go deeper in our relationships as a practice. So that was the logic behind allowing this thing to come <laughs> into the world. And uh, then the last part of the story is I have a contract with a publisher who's published all my books that they get the first writer refusal on anything that I write. So I sent it to them and they said, no, we're not interested. This is way too intimate. So if you maybe pull a little bit of the personal out, and maybe at the end of every chapter have like an exercise 
parents can do to be more mindful, then we're happy to publish it. And I thought, you just completely missed exactly what we're trying to do. So then we got approached by another American publisher, which was really exciting. And they read it, and they said exactly the same thing. That this book is way too raw, and that um, um, if you made it more the teacher's voice, then uh, we would publish this, this book. And, uh, and then we thought, okay, we're going to self-publish this, this book. <laughs> so, you know. Okay. Um, can, I, can I read to you from the beginning, and then we can, we can talk a little bit? Uh, if you have kids here and they need to run around or pull books off the shelf, that's, that's okay. <clears throat> so I'll just read to you from the beginning uh, here of the book. Uh, the, so, so this is all letters. Um, and, and they're not... I mean, what ended up getting edited out of the book was references to other people. Because we were scared that we would get sued. <laughs> so... Um, so there's references to other people that were taken out of the book, but pretty much these letters are exactly how they were, they were written. Um, and when I talk about A, A is uh, my eldest son, my first son. Uh, Dear Matthew, last night Karina and I watched a film on Russian water births from the 1970s. Oh, this is, I should just tell you, we were obsessed with watching any kind of birthing film on YouTube. So we had like a week of chimpanzees, um, which have you ever seen how chimpanzees give birth? It's crazy. They, they roll over like a uh, plow pose in yoga. So they're looking at their own genitals and then, so, and then the baby comes out and they pull the baby out of themselves. It's really fascinating. Um, and then we got obs- what's that? Yeah, we didn't try it. Yeah. And then afterwards, we got obsessed with um, all these Russian uh, films about giving birth in the Black Sea, uh, or giving birth at home in like these glass tubs. So uh, you can watch them; they're really strange. Last night, Karina and I watched a film on Russian water births from the 1970s. Wood panels maroon fringe things, fur hats. The film begins with a laboring woman and her partner kissing in a glass tub, him rubbing her shoulders with his young hands. Then she reaches down between her legs, the camera filming through the glass, and starts rubbing the baby's head in small circles as it squeezes down and out into the water. Then the arms pop out, seemingly with no elbows, Finally, you see the umbilical cord. She rubs the mucus from the baby's eyes, lifts its almost human face out of the water, and brings the baby's lips to hers to suck out the fluids. I didn't realize a baby could be underwater for so long. As we watched the baby suckling at its mother's breast, I remembered when my first real yoga teacher, Patabi Joyce, said that the first inhale is birth and the final exhale is death. I had known that intellectually, but in the moment he said it, I felt it in a way that's never left me. The film, idyllic as it is, left me in a mood all night. The beautiful, perfect birth, the the birth the way God intended, according to the film's narrator, isn't really the way birth goes for so many families. I slept poorly, realizing that as much as Karina and I have talked about it, 
I have no idea what to do for the upcoming birth. We're due in seven months. Will I be in the tub with her, rubbing her shoulders and kissing her? Or will I be bringing tea and watching the midwives help her? Will I be there arguing with doctors about whether we should have a C-section? I was involved in every minute of A's birth. He was born in an iron frame bed at home. Yet after watching the Russian water births, I now realize how there was an interior life I was navigating during the birth that I've never shared with anyone. So, yes to your idea of marking these next months of pregnancy with an exchange of emails. With us both expecting, I'm eager to talk this process through. In the days following A's birth, I was overwhelmed and struggling. I loved him more than anything I'd ever seen, a love broken out of time and space. I still love him that much. At the time, though, I felt like my only role was to support his mother. I had no idea what any other role would or could be. I kept telling myself I needed to be a rock. I was 28. I tried to do everything I could to support his mother, but I reached a limit. She was a decade older. All I wanted was for her to be comfortable. We were surrounded by supportive women, but there was no talk of how I, the soon-to-be father, could support and be supported as we undertook that journey together. So I turned, as I always have, to my practice. Yoga postures, sitting meditation, chanting, studying. I still wake up in the morning and I sit. I light incense, chant, sway my body side to side until my sits bones are equally settled in the cushion. I follow my inhale and exhale through the channels of my nostrils. I hear Karina stirring in the warm bed in the next room. I'm often distracted by emails waiting for me in my inbox, but I sit there nevertheless, and sweetly. Thoughts come and go, the mind goes on and on, trying to frame everything that comes through, grasping, releasing, grasping, releasing. The furnace turns on and off, the birds appear at the window, my son snores in the next room, and every time I lose track of the breath, I start again. I'm thinking a lot about fatherhood these days. This new pre pre pregnancy excites me, haunts me, thrills me, scares me. Being a father is the best thing that ever happened to me. A is turning nine now. His legs are getting longer and skinnier. He doesn't smell like an infant. Last night, when I was helping him fold his clothes into his drawers, I felt as if no time had passed since I was guiding his ankle through sleepers. I can't, can't imagine him as an infant anymore, but I also can't envision him as an adult. He studies me sometimes, and I'm not sure what he's thinking. He's torn between living in two homes. I'm supposed to give him roots and wings, but mostly he wants to be with his mother. This confuses me. So even though I love being a father, I'm exhausted by being a father under scrutiny. I know in separation this is common, but the pain tugs at me, like skin caught on a thorn. When I pick him up from school, I love watching him put on his knapsack, pack his locker, joke with his friends whose mouths are filled with gum, and kiss me when nobody's looking. Sometimes when he's asleep, I'll watch him for a few breaths, the muscles around his arm bones soft and innocent again. I guess we're studying each other. So the pregnancy's bringing up old fears, doubts, and pain. 
Ten years later and five years after his birth, my relationship with his mother imploded. I was embarrassed that my practice couldn't help me. My heart was shattered, and I saw that maybe I was using practice to avoid things that weren't working at home. Now I'm living on the same street where he was born, but in another house and in a different relationship. This was kind of weird, but I ended up living on the same street a few houses away from where he was born. I've given up concentration practices in favor of cultivating moment-to-moment awareness. I've replaced my youthful longing for transcendence with the practice of being fully present in my life. We have a mortgage, an old house where every corner is in need of repair, a baby on the way, and I'm determined to do it differently this time. I think of practice now in terms of cultivating intimacy. I've come to believe that the whole material world is nothing but relationships, and love is the glue that holds everything together. So how do I love what's right in front of me without trying to change it or make it my own? I've come full circle back to the beginning of my practice. Now my body, this city, my son, my child-to-be, my life with Karina, the building of community, these are my anchors and my home. In fact, it's never been otherwise. It just took me a while to see it this way. The Buddha called waking up going against the stream. Intimacy in family life goes against the stream of our distracted culture. Karina and I are now dreaming our home into a monastery. The forms are invisible, but deep down under the old wooden stairs and the trembling furnace, we're building something sacred. Last night at the supermarket, an old woman with failing eyes was studying the price tag on a package of eggplant. I walked up to help her, and as I approached her, her husband stepped in, also frail, and he lifted the eggplants up close to one eye and exclaimed, $2.99, a great deal. They both laughed. The eggplants went into a cart, and together they pushed it towards the next aisle. I followed them for a while. Love, Michael. So, <laughs> intense reading. <laughs> I haven't read that out loud, actually. Um, so, I'm interested to hear what what you think, and then we can we can talk a little bit about this. And I have some questions for you also. Any comments or feelings that come up? Um, I have to say that something that I found um, tremendous about the book was a mother, as a mother, reading the perspective of two men. Right. I, it just was wonderful. Yeah. Not only shed new light on my poss- the possibilities of the way I see my own partner, yeah. but also yeah. um, there was a universality in the rawness and the honesty that yeah. it, where I felt really moved yeah. and inspired to feel that in my own life yeah. my family yeah. So. Yeah. you succeeded in doing that yeah thank you it's interesting because I mean one of the things these publishers said when we talked to them about the book is don't forget that women buy books <laughs> so mostly women if men are reading the book it's likely that a woman will be buying the book for the man and I hadn't really thought about that mm-hmm. yeah. so um 
<clears throat> yeah, I hadn't thought about how so many women uh, have read the book and said, oh, was this what was going on for my husband? <laughs> I, or, or maybe this gives me an avenue to better understand uh, a way of thinking about what might be going on. I think that and also my own feelings, my own places that perhaps I, that were unobserved before. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I really felt a, yeah. a kinship. Thing. Yeah, great. Yeah. Not to keep it in the same family. Yeah. <laughs> but I, because one, the, first of all, that's a great setup. That, yeah. That that is that that email. Yeah. Is a great setup because there's so much. There's like the anticipation. There's the excitement. There's the fear. Then there's yeah. also this the with your your first son. Yeah. That that pain there. Yeah. Is yeah, I could feel. Yeah. Um, one thing you mentioned in there on in like one or two sentences was the uh, the idea of everything you could do to support your wife. Yeah. The first time. Yeah. And that, that there was no that um, you basically at the end of it was like you, you actually realized you weren't even thinking about your no not at all self, yeah really. yeah yeah and and so at the end of it you went oh I guess it's then like practice yeah um, but can that it just intrigued me the idea of the fact that men don't think about yeah. how what theirs what they need <clears throat> yeah it, it's it's a self obviously it's all about the mother and that totally mother. totally <clears throat> but what is it well. I mean, just to speak personally, you know, when I was in my early, pretty much when I was 20, I decided that I just wanted to be a monk. And so um, my interest was basically concentration practices in monastic environments. That was, that was my plan. And, but there was this other thing that was like always around, which is I really wanted a family. And then um, when I was 26, 25, 26, I got the thing that women get in their late 30s. Do you know what I'm talking about? And like, I just really wanted a baby. And I felt kind of embarrassed that I had this, like, you know. So anyways, um, when we got pregnant, and, and, and at the time, my partner, my, my son's mother, she's an artist, and her whole crew around her were all artists, career artists, none of whom had children. And so I wanted a baby bad, badly, really. And it just felt like I was the only one, really. And when she got pregnant, she was really excited about it. But I, I didn't, so in our community, I didn't have a model for anything other than what I had learned in a monastic environment, which is you just serve, mm -hmm. right? You just serve. This isn't about you. This is like your vow is you just serve, serve, serve. And so that's what I did, thinking that that's what you do. Plus, I was in my 20s. And I think when you're in your 20s, it's, e it's easy to either be completely obsessed with yourself or forget about yourself and focus on something that's not yourself. And so I think, for me, there was no middle ground there. And I was supporting her. Everything in our culture was all about the mother. And I didn't know how to support myself. Um, I think that's very common. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very common. Yeah. Not just coming from your background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think men, for men sure. Also, don't because they don't even know how to articulate mm -hmm. what's going on. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just think that that's that's very interesting. Yeah, actually, you know, 
I'm sharing. I'm, I might be oversharing, but when Karina and I met, one of the things I said to her when we met is, the most important thing for me to be in this relationship with you is to maintain my practice. And I have a morning ritual that I do, so until 8.30 in the morning, I'm not available. So if you're sick or anything during the day, I'll cancel anything. But I'm not available until 8.30 in the morning. And I really stuck to my guns for the first few years. Um, now I can't pull that off as easily anymore. Yeah. So um, I think that uh, you know it's easy to lose track of our own needs. Not only in relationships, but just generally. Um, in our, uh, you know, in our lives, and so I, I hope that one of the messages of this book is like let's have a conversation about how easily that can happen, and not just for men, but but generally. Um, Remington. Yeah, did the um, publishers you wrote to did they offer any advice that you guys actually took on, or did None. you sort of just stick to exactly how it was originally when you planned it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Did that feel good in the end? Did you feel like that was it? Well, Matthew and I are both like anarchist contrarian, you know, like so it was like we, we felt like we were sticking it to them a little bit. <laughs> you know. And it also like allowed us to do whatever we wanted. Also, I mean if you read the book and maybe you can hear this in the book, like it was really important for us to stay with a kind of like I think we both think in a kind of literary way, and we wanted to keep that in the book. Like, the words we choose, how we write, has its roots more in, I don't know, poetry and thinking than it does in self-help, the self-help genre, you know. Because in the self-help thing, it's just like, cut to the chase. Like yeah, here's done. what to do, yeah. do this. Exactly. And I felt cool. like, I don't really want to tell you what to do, uh, I don't know what to do. Dan Siegel knows what to do. I don't know what to do. Um, but I know what something feels like. And I, I feel like if I can say what it feels like, then maybe you can feel what it feels like for you. Does, does that yeah, sound? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah please. Yeah. One setting counseling and yeah. I grew up like, in a single home yeah. as well. and yeah. so I don't have a father and so I think I would read this to yeah. understand better like what that mindset might be for a male because I have no relation to that yeah. at all and I think yeah. it would help me give a better understanding yeah just from a perspective because I would have no idea yeah <laughs> yeah so foreign to me yeah, yeah. 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 well well I encourage you to, to read it <laughs> yeah Thank you. Yes. Um, yes. I don't have children. Okay. And, um, uh, but in, in like I'm a spiritual teacher, also mm -hmm. a yoga teacher and counselor, and I facilitate workshops. And what yeah. uh, speaks to me is this whole idea of family wakes us up and speaks to the roots of the lineage and of the relationships yeah. that we have. And in your first uh, email. Um, uh, speaking about the kind of like the demise of your first relationship and yeah. how you went to your practice and even that couldn't help and some things aren't <coughs> meant to 
be patched up or to be worked out. They've got a life, and so I think um, what uh, I, I, I had a I have a good friend in California. I lived there for a period of time, and we had this email relationship going yeah. on, and we had this raw uh, intimacy, and we've we've kind of let it go for the last couple of years, and this has really inspired me yeah. to to open that up again. Um, like and as you express yourself uh, and not tell us what to do but how you um, express what you're feeling like you say really puts us in touch with that inside ourselves and uh, in a sense gives us license to um, start to be expressed be Mm self-expressed Yeah, so yeah. I really appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yes? I'm really curious to know more about your practice of cultivating intimacy, and in particular, um, it seems like it relates to keeping your attention on yourself and other like, while you're in a relationship. And not, yeah. As you were talking about, not just being completely focused on one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's two sides to it. One side, I think, is a, a personal realm, and another side is kind of political. So the, the personal is, um, how do I continue to go deeper in my own practice, which for me is... Uh, I, I, I usually measure like the success of practice by how much we're able to serve like with our whole heart without losing ourselves. For me that's this balance that, that I'm interested in because the deeper I go in my own life the more I want to express it, you know. Um, so that ratio I, I can't there's no blueprint for. <laughs> I think we're always negotiating that. But I also think there's a political part of this conversation, which I haven't touched on yet, but I do in the book, which is that the model of a nuclear family, I think, is an impossible model. And I feel like what happened halfway through the book is starting to realize that a lot of the troubles I was having were not actually so personal. It was actually like a social problem, which is that our idea of the nuclear family, um, I think, is is uh, um, extremely idealistic, and I think we need so much more support to raise kids and to raise parents, and. Um, um, I also hope that's a conversation that comes out of this, this too. So I, d- does that respond to your question? Yeah, I'd also yeah. love to know just a little bit more about yeah. uh, when you say my practice is cultivating intimacy. Mm-hmm. Like, just Maybe I should tell you what I, yeah. like some of the things that I think of as my practice. Sure. So uh, I meditate every morning. This is how it works. I put a cushion beside my bed and literally I roll out of my bed to not wake anyone up and I sit on it and um, I've had a daily meditation practice every day since 1995 and 
Um, when I sit, I feel my breathing, and whatever comes up through the time that I'm sitting, I try to become as intimate as possible with it until hopefully there's no me left and there's just the experience that's happening. And um, then I get up and I feel like there's this resource that's there during the day so that I can have that kind of connection with what I'm encountering. Other people, emails, being angry, being impatient, like whatever comes up. I feel like the idea you should be present with everything all day is a great idea, but I feel like without practice it's really just a philosophical statement. And I think it's really important that everybody has a practice. For some people it's an art practice, I mean whatever your practice is, but that you are deeping it in a way that it actually changes you. Um, and that's how I think of, that's what I think of as a practice of intimacy. Now the thing about meditation practice that I think is different than making music or painting or dancing or, or other kinds of practice is that you don't get anything from it. It doesn't produce anything. And I think it's precisely because meditation doesn't produce anything in a culture so obsessed with production that I feel like it's really valuable. So to me, that practice clears a space that allows me to, to be more spontaneous, more creative, more loving, and uh, more clear. And I think it works. And then I try and bring that same clarity to, you know, all of my relationships sometimes with more success than others. And I'm fascinated with that. So, yeah. um, Let me just look at the time. Okay, we can keep going a little longer. Any, these are great comments. Anybody back there? Hi. Oh, good. Just speak up a little bit louder. Yeah. Well, Matthew did and I didn't. Yeah. And after Matthew did, a certain person threatened him with legal action. And so we actually had to hire a lawyer, which was the most expensive part of the production of this book, to actually vet the entire book. Which, if you can imagine how much that costs, was like, we'll never make our money back, basically. When you buy this book, you're paying our legal fees. Um, and, you know, maybe that, seemed, that was fair, you know, and it made us feel like, okay, what's the right thing to do? How do you write about family? You know, and Matthew and I had different perspectives on this a little bit. Um, but at the last minute, I changed some things. Um, and I'm happy I did that. But the last draft before this book was published still had some pretty intense things about my father. and It felt strange to write a book about parenting and not talk about 
my parents. Um, but at the last minute, I thought, you know what? I don't want to say anything about my parents where they don't have an opportunity to respond, because that would just be hurtful. Um, so that was a, ba a real balancing act, this combination of like what's right, what's raw, what's honest, and what's the law. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think he didn't he didn't really understand, I think, so much why I would want to do it. Um, and anywhere where he said something that I thought would maybe be embarrassing or something down the road, I took it out. Yeah. Which is mostly dialogue that we had. But I left enough in that it's, you know, you can feel it. Yeah, because, uh, I mean, as you know, if you've read the book, you know, by the end of the book, like, there's a lot of conflict, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, one day they'll write a book about me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Michael, you um, you mentioned that you were reading towards the end, oh. you spoke something about intimacy in the family as going against the brain. Yeah. And then you spoke about. Um, Intimacy and the nuclear family. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, can you offer a little oh, bit more, a little bit yeah. deeper? I'm just thinking, you know, throughout eons and eons and eons, yeah. when there was a village, and in some parts of the world there still is a village yeah. that raises. So am, am I hearing yeah. that really kind of this idea that this invention of this nuclear family has just really messed us up? Yeah, so there's two questions. One is around the going against the stream, and one is around the nuclear family. Uh, so, you know, in my spare time, I'm a kind of, like, nerd about Buddhist literature. <laughs> and um, there's a wonderful... Uh, there, there's, these, there's two Buddhist teachers whose work I follow very closely, uh, uh, a guy named Richard Gombrich and someone else named Stephen Batchelor. And they've both pointed out something interesting in the Buddhist literature around the Buddha's enlightenment, which is that there's two versions of the Buddha's awakening. One is he wakes up under a tree, he sees the Four Noble Truths, it's all like perfect. But there's another version in the canon, which is the one that most traditions don't read, which is in the first person, which is really interesting. And it's the Buddha, weeks after his awakening, describing what happened. And his, describing, his description of his awakening is that um, what he woke up to is quiet and deep. And I'm paraphrasing, but he, he says that, but it's difficult for people to wake up to the ground. So he describes what he woke up to is not like this, but is actually the ground of reality. And then he says, the reason why it's difficult for people to wake up to the ground is because they love, delight, and revel in their viewpoint. And then he says, uh, noticing this goes against the stream. And that's where that quote comes from. So in other words, that being able to wake up to the ground goes against the stream. 
which a lot of academics say was his critique of religion. Because no, mostly we think of enlightenment as like this. And the Buddha is saying, actually, to really be awake is to actually be in touch with the ground. And some of you might see around here, a lot of the statues of the Buddha in his awakening, he's pointing to the ground. He's not pointing uh, up. So that's why I really love this idea of going against the stream. A practice goes against the stream. The momentum of the ideology of our society. Right? So one of the ideologies of our culture that I think doesn't get examined, especially by parents, is that we have an idea of a nuclear family and what that means economically for our economic lives, what it means for our social lives as parents, what it means for our, our sexual lives. I mean, every aspect, um, I think, doesn't get... I want to explode it a little bit and suggest that, you know, maybe sometimes a lot of our suffering is because of this model of uh, the two parents have to do everything. You know, like, for example, this week, um, I've had a cold. Uh, right now, Karina has a stomach flu. And uh, we have to ask her parents to help so much with our son. So that, be but if our, our parents weren't around, like many people's parents aren't around, and you can't afford a nanny, then you have to keep asking each other to help out with time. Like, can you take him now so I can have a shower? Can you? And there's a point where you just can't do that without having exhaustion and resentment and so on. So, um, so I feel like looking into that wakes us up and also goes against the stream of the narrative that we delight and revel in. You know? So... Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you still formally teach, and where do you live? Yeah. Well, I've recently moved from Toronto, which is the last. Ch I recognize you, actually. Uh, which is the last chapter of this book. Um, I was uh, exhausted. I was lying in Karina's parents' backyard, and Karina came over to me and said, "Sit up." So I sat up and she said, I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to answer without thinking about it. I said, okay. <laughs> she said, okay, ready? Yes. She said, can we move to BC, yes or no? And I said, yes. <laughs> and that was it. Which caused a complete catastrophe in our community in Toronto. Um, so yeah, I've, mo I've moved out here and now I'm slowly starting to teach more here. Um, and I have a website michaelstoneteaching.com and, and you can see my schedule there. Where do you live? Um, here? I live on one of the Gulf Islands. Okay. Yeah, but I'm here a lot in Vancouver. So, yeah. Um, the transition between... We, we, we can talk for... Let me just... I have to keep an eye on the time because I actually yeah. have to be somewhere at 1 o'clock. So. Yeah. Transition between I will not have another child. This is done over. And obviously, you meet a new partner and you fall in love. But beyond yeah. the falling in love, yeah. how did you transition from okay, this is it, and I'm opening again to this possibility? With this painfully. Yeah. The first thing That's that I noticed is whenever I walked by parks and I saw moms with strollers, mm -hmm. 
I thought they looked so depressed. <laughs> like I'd see moms walking down the street with kids and I thought, oh my god, they're so depressed. And like, oh, this was completely my projection, right? And I started to notice that I have this, had this kind of like wound, you know, and um, so that was the first phase. And then when we found out Karina was pregnant, um, I had a difficult time. Um, I was excited we were pregnant. I was happy to become a dad again. But I had a hard time getting excited about like massaging her body or like really connecting <coughs> physically with her belly. And that was like something, there's a lot of letters about that. And Karina kept saying, I want more massage. And I would find every reason why I didn't want to. So there was like, it wasn't so like mental. It was more like physically. I, I had this like thing where I just didn't want to do that. Um, and then probably uh, during the labor, the whole thing fell away. And I was so into the labor, so into the process. And um, I think that was the thing where it just turned around. So I don't want to idealize the nine months and say, suddenly I was like ready to be a dad again. It was like, I needed the nine months. I joked a lot, like imagine if, imagine if like it only took a month. Fiona. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. um. <laughs> um, when you realized what you needed, how did that change your relationship? And how did that mm. affect her? I don't think I ever realized what I needed. I think that's ongoing. And it's changing. That's that ratio I was saying earlier. Like, I think it changes all the time. Like, just staying close to how you feel, I think, reveals what you need that day. And I think that's something I still work with. And how does it change? Is that. I think if you. I think if you are not, if, I think if you don't know how you feel as a person and like what your needs are, you can't be in relationship because then the other person doesn't really know who they're in relationship with because um, you're not in tune, you know. And that's like a deeply psychological insight I think that we all have to come to is that so much of our patterns in relationship are set down in the first few years of our life. And as Buddhist as I get, I still think that insight from Western psychology is so true. That the patterns that get laid down in the attachment styles we make as adults occurred in the first three or four years of life. And so, for example, if you have a parent who is very needy um, and when you grow up you have this amazing radar for other people's needs and you come across as a great partner but actually you can lose track very easily with your own needs right so um, there's many variations of that dynamic so I think for us to recognize like the patterns we end up in in relationships is part of this waking up process and 
I don't think you ever, like, realize it. I think it just is like a continual area we need to pay attention to. Yeah. Uh, you had a chance, so I'm just going to okay. see if there's anyone else who hasn't spoken. Especially back there. Okay, last question. Uh, um, I have, have you spoke about your meditation practice, the Eva Daily yeah. Meditation yeah. Practice. I was curious yeah. about your yoga practice. Yeah. Uh, a movement practice. <coughs> yeah, um, because of my life these days, I don't have a daily yoga practice, um, but it happens many times during the week. Um, so if something has to let go in my schedule, the yoga practice I let go of, but not the sitting practice. Um, but uh, I think everything I do with my body is a yoga posture. Um, so that's also part of my practice. Um, but uh, but I still have a formal yoga practice, yeah, pranayama practice. Yeah. So one more question or comment, and then um, uh, the, the the I guess pattern is I'm supposed to sign books. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm still to your book. I've read some of the others and they're quite inspiring. um, Since you opened up your life to us, it it always opens a lot of questions for yourself. But um, how do you balance of demanding family life, which I'm sure we all have, with a career and professional life that you have, teaching all over the place and yeah. striking that balance, I guess, is a challenge for, for all, particularly if you engage into a practice like uh, what you're teaching and what you're doing. Yeah, how do you, how do you balance how all do of these things? Yeah. Well, um, I, you know, that's one of the reasons why we moved is because um, if you ever look at my website, uh, as I said to you guys earlier, it's kind of embarrassing. It's scary. It's scary. Um, and you know, I'm home for a week, and then you know, in two weeks, I'm in Europe for a couple of weeks, and you know, I travel a lot. Um, sometimes my family comes with me. Sometimes they don't. Um, and uh, what was happening was doing that and family life and running a a kind of thriving community in Toronto became too much. And so one of the ways that I find more balance is uh, having a much deeper relationship with the natural world, which is when I'm home, I'm home. And um, I try to uh, stay really focused on my domestic life when I'm home. And um, um, it ends up working, you know. Um, but I think sometimes we have to like lower our expectations. And uh, as Buddhist as I am, I'm still a very productive Jewish person, and so I tend to just keep taking on projects. So one of the things I've learned is like how to stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and as some of you know in your career, I know many of you here. You know there is a kind of process where like the more creative energy you get the more ideas for projects you get 
And I think part of balancing creative energy is like being able to see that you don't have to do every project. And uh, um, I don't know. And, and I mean, maybe that's something that like happens when you leave your 30s. <laughs> is you know, creative energy becomes something that you don't need to turn into a product. And I feel like that's one of the ways I keep balanced. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay, one more question, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we live uh, against a forest and close to the ocean, and there's a trail from my house that goes up to a lake and then goes to the ocean, and I walk it every day, and. Um, I am getting to know this local place really deeply. In the same way that in Toronto I had this with alleys. Um, and I feel like I had this idea that, oh, you go to the forest and you have a relationship with the forest. But it's not like that, actually. It's also an intimate relationship that takes time. And like the forest isn't like, here, I'm just going to show you everything. And it's like, it's a practice of looking. And I also think that's an art practice. You know, it's a practice of like looking closely and looking again and looking again. In, uh, in Buddhist meditation, um, there's a, a term called anupashana, which means uh, to look and then to look again. And I feel like that's how I'm developing a relationship with the natural world. Just like with your kids, right? You can look at your kid and not really. <coughs> you see this sometimes with people who don't have kids. When they talk to your kid, they stay standing. And then the kid doesn't always connect with them. But uh, if you want to have a relationship with the kid, you kneel down and you get to eye level. And you say, what's your name or whatever. And then they're right there with you. So I feel like it's the same with a tree and the same with birds, weather. You have to like get into the level, and then and then it 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 affects you, changes you. So, uh, thank you everybody for coming. This was this was really wonderful for me, and uh, you know it's great to talk about these things and and to hear some of your comments. Um, I hope that uh, you get the book, or if you know a family that might benefit from the book, uh, you get the book from for, for them. Like I said earlier, I don't make any money from this book. <laughs> um, but I hope that it's, it sparks a conversation um, uh, that I think is really important to, to have. So thank you very much. And uh, I, I can stay here and, and sign copies of the book if anybody wants one.